When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 27th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The HSE has been allocated €642 million euro for capital spending on construction projects and for the equipping of health services in 2019. But as we enter into the seventh month of this year, the plan for how to spend this money is still being finalised. Yesterday, Fianna Fáil called on the government to commit to publishing the plan before the doll goes into its summer recess. It follows on from a report in the Irish Times yesterday which suggests the HSE has told the government that it will be almost impossible to deliver planned investments in new healthcare facilities in the coming years because of cost overruns at the National Children's Hospital. They are concerned... uh, for some time apparently that 11 billion euro funding arrangements for new hospitals and nursing homes as well as money for ambulances and equipment under the 2040 capital development plan have not been balanced a letter from the acting director general Anne O'Connor dated on May third says that uh, the health service executive will need an additional 107 million euro in 2020 120 million euro extra in 2021 and an additional 150 million euro in 2022 it's a lot of money uh, that uh, cannot be balanced it would seem uh, at this stage at least and rabbit Fianna Fáil TD for Galway East is on the line and uh, the junior health spokesperson for Fianna Fáil a very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us once again on the programme how unusual is it for a government or for the HSE as uh, the case may be not to have published its spending plans as we go into July it's very unusual at this stage like to think of it we're over halfway through the year and we actually don't know how we're spending the money or what plans are going to be allocated, the funding. It's really, it's, it's, it's unprecedented that this would happen. Now, last year, we didn't have the, the summer economic statement until the week we had actually broken for recess. So that's why my colleague would have been calling yesterday, Dara in the Dáil, 
for it to be released. So at least we can have debate and discussion and create the public awareness as to actually where and the, what exactly is going on. Because people need to know how their parishes in their local areas, mm. whether it's your primary medical centre, whether it's an extension to your hospital, what's going on and who's getting priority or who's being cut more to the point. Right. Uh, and the fear obviously is uh, that the overrun on the children's hospital is going to mean that something has to give. Well, we already know that 24 million is the first impact on the, the children's hospital this year because that was flagged already last year that there was 100 million of both budgetary cuts, of which 24 million had to come from health. So we now need to know what are the cuts going to be as part of the capital plan and where they're going to start taking it off and what region is going to be impacted and what projects are going to be affected. Um, Because everybody knows, and Anne O'Connor has been very clear on this for the last six weeks and very consistent in saying they need a capital plan, they know what they need to keep it ticking over as such, because if you don't invest in the, the capital projects regionally around the country, um, it will impact generally down the line in the quality of service that will be delivered, Michael. Well, I suppose the fear is that they've a lot less money than they think they have. They have an awful lot less money than they think they have because it, it, it is very clear that the Department of Health and their officials, are, and also as far as the Minister for Finance himself, mm. doesn't have a clear understanding as to what spending is going on with this new children's hospital. Mm. And the Taoiseach has gone as far as to say he can't say it will stop um, um, before, uh, at two billion either. Maybe inaccurate to say they've less than they think they have, but they need more than they thought they would need. That's a very, very good mm. way of putting it. Mm. They, 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 they will need more than they, than they thought they need. And like anybody who's built their own house, and knows exactly that it never comes in exactly on, on budget. But at the same time, building for yourself as opposed to taking one project and then thinking about all the other projects around the country and trying to have that balance is a very fine line when the balance is required where services have been looking for years to actually have funding put into their area. Right, and uh, the figures uh, that uh, have uh, been put to government uh, by Anne O'Connor, the Acting Director General, are, are staggering, aren't they? £107 million extra next year, £120 million extra the year after, and £150 million extra the year after that. They actually are, but I suppose they're reflective of an ageing population, they're, they're reflecting uh, of the growth in population, and they're reflecting uh, on probably not enough investment over the last number of years. So Anne O'Connor is a woman herself who has worked her way all the way through the health system and knows exactly what is required. So I think that probably is a very balanced, while it's a a gastronomical figure, it's probably a a very accurate reflection of what's required. Okay, but this isn't uh, the first time in recent months that we've uh, been having this discussion. It it was an issue uh, that came to light, I think, as we came into the year last December. Uh, This was uh, something that was discussed by Cabinet and cabinet, uh, the government, in other words, were told uh, that nothing would have to be cancelled or delayed for that matter. Yes, but but that in itself was a left very naive and that's very hard to believe that we would think when we're talking about an overrun of a project that's going to cost three times 
a minimum of three times what it was initially going to cost. And when you put into the mix that you have, then the, the national broadband plan as well. To think that projects weren't going to be impacted and to think that we wouldn't have an overrun, I find that incredible hard. Or either that or there's people sitting around that cabinet table with very little finance acumen entirely. Mm. And the health service itself is well over budget. Uh, 82.7 million euro. It's an incredible amount of money. That's up to March last year. But of course, uh, there was a, a huge overrun last year uh, uh, of 600 million. Uh, and uh, the re- realistic calculation is over 103 million now at this stage. Yes. And I, the, the, what is interesting also to know is that when the, the department were before um, the health committee very recently, Deputy Mark McSharry, asked the question, um, would there be need to be another interim budget as we've had in, for the last number of years to, to, to actually keep the HSC afloat? And the answer was they didn't foresee it. Now, and we know where we are at the moment with an overspend of £107 million, it's hard to see that they, they won't need additional funding to keep uh, that beast afloat either. Mm. Uh, and I uh, was talking to Patrick O'Donovan about this yesterday and he said, look, it's a, a demand-led service. Uh, that's what happens uh, when the demand is such, well, you end up paying more than you expect it to if the demand ex- exceeds expectations. Well, I, I don't actually buy into that either because if it was a demand-led service, we wouldn't have had motions and private members' bills for the last number of weeks in relation to home care hours or home care packages. Uh, a demand-led service, it would mean that the service was there for the people. At the moment, right across this country, we have people waiting for home health hours. That is demand-led and they are not getting it. Mm. And it's very clearly that families are being seriously impacted because there, there's no new hours being made available uh, available through the home care package scheme. So I don't believe that for, for one second. Yeah. That's demand-led. OK, so you make his point for him to some degree because uh, the retort is, uh, do you want to spend more? Well, the, is spend better is what I would be looking for. Spend more prudently and actually um, cost things in advance before you start spending at all. So it is very clear that while there was an awful lot of fanfare around the children's hospital and while it was very, very welcome and everything else, nobody had actually done what it was going to cost. And mm. nobody had said, is it going to come in on budget and is it going to have a tolerance of 10% or 20% over that initial 650 million. That's not the case. What has happened is we have something over three and a half times the initial announcement. Like That is not um, planning whatsoever. Mm, but that's the capital budget. When it comes uh, to the budget for services, uh, do you stop spending uh, despite the demand if you run out of money? No, you can't because at the end of the day, you cannot stop. Um, spending, and I go back again to my home care hours, mm. that when you have a person that has to have a, a person of whatever age has to have their knee operation done or their hip operation, they're probably 70 or 80 years of age and they're being discharged and they're being discharged to a caring relative normally, a, a spouse who is of the same age and that spouse is not able to help their husband or their wife get out of bed in the morning for the couple of weeks or such time as they're fully rehabilitated. Do we, and has two falls, which is ex- exactly what I experienced last week in my own clinic, where a gentleman who was Parkinson's, he slipped on the Friday, he slipped on the Saturday, no home help hours, granted no assistance for his wife, but they're actually told, just make do. So that, that's, that's what you have to balance it against.
Okay, but uh, the idea is to save 500 million, isn't it? Uh, in the circumstances we find well, ourselves we in, what, what, are, what, what are the options in terms well, of funding that now, if it doesn't right, come well, from the overall health well, we, budget? Well, we have to look at agency and what agency is costing um, and the state. Um, because for what you pay for an agency staff member as opposed to what you mm. pay for a HSE. And I rose, raised this issue myself um, when I spoke on the home care. We should be investing more into the training and the recruitment mm. into that particular Perhaps sector. so, but, uh, and that's a conversation we've been having for years. But uh, as we said at the outset, we're going into July uh, and with six months left in the year, what can we do now? I mean, the realistic prospect of recruiting people and putting them into these jobs so that that might Money could be saved over the course of the next six months. This, this government are in place for the last eight years. This mm. is not just something that happened overnight. So I, I have to question the credibility in relation to identifying when we know that the aging population, when we know health is one of the key driver in this country. We should. What I am suggesting now should have happened today. It should have been planned for months and months ago. Um, also in relation to how we get people out of acute hospitals. And I talk about the price of acute hospital on a daily basis is approximately 8 to 850 euros a day. The price of a nursing home for a week is 850. We should be moving people that cannot get the services or supports at home definitely out of our acute system into our nursing home system and stepping down people a hell of a lot quicker. That would free up money quite remarkably. So that would be a, a very interim result, uh, alleviation of a problem. As it turns out, uh, this is the second time uh, you've spoken to us on the programme uh, this week, uh, you were speaking to us about uh, the hospital strike uh, during the week. Uh, do you expect that uh, there will be three days of strike action next week or have you any optimism uh, about uh, the talks that are about to take place in the Labour Court? I would hope um, that that for everybody's sake, that the, the Labour Court would, first and foremost, I would hope it wouldn't happen next week. And that's, that's the first thing. Secondly, I would hope that they could be working over the weekend to give some comfort to the staff who are impacted and more importantly to the patients also who whose, can, whose procedures would be, be cancelled. So hopefully we would have some white smoke um, by Monday. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you for joining us this morning. Anne Rabbit, Fiddafall TD for Galway East and spokesperson for Children and Youth Affairs. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard uh, local Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster tell us uh, that uh, the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris and the Deputy Commissioner John Toomey were in front of uh, the Justice Committee on Tuesday evening. And we should be able to hear some of the interaction that took place at that committee about uh, the ongoing feud in Drogheda. The latest attacks... uh over the last number of days have heightened the sense of fear once again for the communities in Drogheda. Um, another shooting last Thursday night uh, carried out in broad daylight in a densely populated residential area where young children that were out playing were for- forced to run for cover. Uh, there were two, pet- two homes petrol bombed within hours of that in retaliation. Last night we've seen another home petrol bombed and um, I would acknowledge that the Guardian have been making arrests over recent weeks mm-hmm. but there's a real anguish and fear setting back in again there was a lull for a while and it, 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 it's still there and it's very very real and it's you know it's the fear in communities is palpable um, and there's a real um, need on the ground or, or 
What people are looking for is uh, 24-hour surveillance on these uh, key figures involved in the feud to, um, to curtail their movements, basically, and to monitor them, tail them morning, noon and night. Um, because a lot of people feel, and as I said, I've I would acknowledge that the Guardi have I've made arrests in, in the recent weeks, and I acknowledge that the, the you know we have the special units there, the resp special response units, etc. But um, it always seems to be well in most cases of where there's a shooting or a petrol bomb, it's from the guard's point of view, and this uh, you know could well be resource from a resource point of view, but it's always reactive and never preventative. I mean the shooting that happened Thursday night you have to ask the question that if that 24-hour surveillance had been in place, then people might, the residents in the, in the area, might have been spared the horror mm -hmm. and the fear of criminals, um, you know, attempting to assassinate each other on, the, on people's doorsteps. So there's a real uh, need, as I say, for that 24-hour surveillance to, to, you know, the resources to be supplied. And I raised this with the Minister for Justice and, or with the Taoiseach today, and of course he said the book stops with yourself, that it's an operational matter, um, and that the Commissioner, so I thought, well, how apt you're in tonight. <laughs> so, um, but it's very, very serious, and, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not subsiding. In fact, and I don't want to be, you know... Um, but the, the real fear is that the worst is yet to come. And because they're acting with impunity, because, uh, you know, there, there's no, people actually can't see anything happening on the ground that they see. They see that they're literally going from A to B. Yes. And nothing's happening. So would you, given the length of time it's ongoing, given... It's just... It's pure luck that an innocent passerby hasn't been killed. You had the attack outside the shop, again in another residential area, where they stood in the middle of the road and opened fire, again in broad daylight. No fear that they were going to be apprehended, no fear that they were being tailed, um, quite confident that they could get off and make their way out of town at a time four o'clock when schools are, you know, so they weren't worried about traffic or anything. That, that's, that's the attitude. That's the... the the cockiness of them, if you like, the brazen nature of them. So would you, given the length of time it's ongoing, um, give additional resources? So some, I'm not expecting all, I know there's probably about 60 between the two, and I'm not asking for, you know, between the, not the key figures, but those oh. doing the running about and what have you, but um, would you give a commitment to give additional resources, given all that I've said, um, for 24-hour surveillance. So you're sending a clear message that you're going to be monitored morning, noon and night. Who's coming, who's going, everywhere you go, we're going to be on your tail. Because part of the problem is that they, they don't fear that. Commissioner, um, it is very difficult for me to give that assurance, and, and if we were to do that or something similar to that, the last thing I'd want to do is put that in the, the public domain. At the, and I would say that we, and I would confirm and hope to, I would hope to reassure you that we have put 
um, a huge amount of resource, not just uh, local level, but um, from the national units to support the policing operation um, against the, the, these two uh, feuding gangs. Um, and and that will continue. Like, we do recognise uh, the impact this is having on the town. Um, we want to be in a position where people going about their business can uh, feel they can do so without the fear of serious crime happening around the next corner. Uh, and that's very much our commitment. The rule of law will prevail, and we will continue to put resources uh, to try to make sure that that does happen there. Um, uh, the specific tactic that, you, that you've asked me about... Um, well, I'll make no comment. I'll maybe make comment to you in, in private afterwards because uh, uh, we are in a position where we are expending huge amount of resources, proactive resources, not just reactive, but proactive resources in uh, enforcement operations um, to try and uh, interdict and, and get ahead of, uh, of these criminals. The Guard Commissioner Drew Harris at uh, the Justice Committee responding uh, to Sinn Féin TD. Uh, Melda Munster about uh, the tactics Gardaí are using to police the ongoing feud in Drogheda. That feud was raised earlier at that meeting by another local TD, independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick. I live in County Loud, a very proud county. Uh, Drogheda is in County Loud. Uh, Drogheda is getting a very bad time at the moment. Uh, uh, with shootings and petrol bombing. Uh, since, since last July, over 75 crime attacks has, has happened in Jordan, and it's getting a very bad name, uh, and we want that to stop. Uh, only last Thursday at 8.20pm, a man was shot in Terman Abbey in, in the north of Jordan, with children in the playing area, running scared and afraid of waiting in the streets. And only three hours later, there was also a petrol bomb attack in a house and money more. And luckily, nobody was, was in the house at the time. And only last night, a petrol bomb was thrown in a house in Matt Mullins. Uh, if you go back to August 2018, the FLA, the festival, was held in Jordan. And the people of, of Jordan have done a fantastic job, also with the local authorities and the Garda and a lot of volunteers. And like Jordan and tens of thousands of people coming from Ireland and all over the country, Jordan had a fantastic name. And all of a sudden, in the last so many months, this is happening. Uh, I, have to, I have to commend your Chief Superintendent, Christy Mangan. And, like, as, a, as a former football manager myself, it's always nice to praise your team. Like, uh, he has nothing but uh, praise for the guards that he has in, uh, in Jordan, about the courage in confronting these gangs. He also talks about acts of bravery and kindness by many members of, of the Angali, the Shirkhan, that, uh, that most people don't actually hear about. Uh, we welcome the extra 25 guards that we got there in the last few weeks. Uh, we also w- w- welcome that the armed guard emergency response teams there and with the regional support units. But listen, it, it's not nice being living in Jordan at the moment. Is and Jordan is a fantastic town, a lot, a lot to offer. So, can can you give the people of Jordan any kind of confidence? Because what's going to happen is then. Uh, the flower 2019 is going to come again, and, like, and there's going to be tens of thousands of people coming to Jordan. People are afraid at the moment living in Jordan. Children are afraid to go out and play in the street. So, and we have the actual resources. But it's, I know it's still happening. I know it's not going to happen overnight. But can you give any kind of comfort to the people in Jordan and County Loud at the moment? Uh, well, I'll... I'll pass over to John very short just to some of the operational detail because really it was from August last year that these, these difficulties started to arise when, whenever 
uh, a drug gang um, started to enter into this this you know, vicious vicious feud. But the the optimism or room for hope that that I, I would hope to convey is that we have we have made a commitment. Uh, Christie has made a commitment. I've made a commitment to support that area through. A strong and visible policing, and we have not reneged on that. We have kept up uh, our focus. Um, we've had successes. Uh, there will be individuals before the courts for all sorts of offences, but some very serious offences in that, uh, and, and that has happened already. People have been charged. Uh, other offences, serious offences, have been detected, and we'll keep the pressure on. We recognise the corrosive impact that this is having on the area and uh, we are very much aware of that and alive to it and alive to it in terms of what we can do at the centre uh, to support the policing effort and um, uh, and then to support the local community and we're particularly aware of the upcoming fly in August and the impact um, that could have in providing a positive image in the town and again how we'll support, uh, support that and make sure that it's a successful event for our part in terms of protecting it and make sure that people can go around their lawful business but if I can hand to John as well just with John has been leading on the national operational response yeah, I suppose just to reiterate what the Commissioner is saying is that our commitment uh, is to the people of Loud to ensure that uh, we will do whatever is necessary to provide a safe community for those people to, to come and go about their, about their daily lives and, and, and that th there will be no shift or change in that and whatever the resources are required to achieve that objective, that, that will happen. Um, and, and issues like this have, have, have been dealt with before by Angarda Shikona and through working with the community, through the, 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 that you know, resilience and commitment it, the, law of, uh, the rule of law will prevail and, and, and we will work very closely with the people of Loud to, to give them the community that they, de that they deserve. Uh, from the outset, uh, when, this, uh, when these issues arose, uh, we've had a number of, of initiatives where we've combined national with local resources and we provided additional resources both in the terms of that frontline preventative piece but also in terms of the armed support and all of the skills that are available to the organisation have been targeted towards this specific issue and they will remain in place until this issue is resolved and the issue will be resolved. Well, all I've really said is that uh, all the people in Jordan want is help because Jordan is a fantastic town. What happened over the last few months can't keep it on. Uh, the job that was done in Limerick was fantastic and was done f fast and sharp. And all the people in Jordan are looking for is, is similar what happened in, in Limerick. Independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, asking questions at uh, the Oireachtas uh, Justice Committee of uh, the Guard Commissioner and uh, the Deputy Commissioner, Drew Harris and John Toomey. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's look at a situation a homeless family, the O'Brien family, have found themselves in this week. They've found themselves living in three separate hotels in three different counties since Monday. Michelle and Patrick and their seven children have lived in Offaly, Meath and West Meath. Their seven children are aged uh, between three and 14 years. Uh, they had a, a fourth address in Tullamore, which is also in Offaly, uh, which is where they're from, and the children go to school. They were living there up until early May when they were housed in a hotel in Banner. Uh, 
Uh, but they were told on Monday that they had to leave their accommodation in Banagher. They'd be living in this hotel, a 40-minute drive, although it's in County Offaly, as is Tullamore. It's a 40-minute drive to Tullamore where their children go to school. Uh, but they were told they had to leave uh, because uh, the manager said that uh, the hotel was taking in asylum seekers. So they went from... Uh, Banagher to Trim in County Meath, uh, where they stayed for three nights at €260.25 a night. And from there, they've moved on to Mullingar. This is reported on in the Irish Times uh, this morning, where Kitty Holland reports uh, that the family were given a a voucher for €30 to pay for diesel to get them from Trim to Westmeath, where they're housed for the moment. Peter McVerry is a Jesuit priest who works with the homeless, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Peter, and thanks for morning, joining Mike. us. Some very young children involved in this particular story, and you've seen a, a lot of hard stories oh, over yeah. many years. But how typical is this? I mean, that's a lot of moving around, isn't it? It's very typical. What's exceptional about it, I don't want to talk about the individual case, but what's exceptional about it is a large number of children. But even for a family of, a, of, of regular size, shall we say, it's extremely difficult trying to find any kind of suitable accommodation for them. Particularly now coming into the summer, hotels are booked out uh, for, uh, with tourists. In fact, there's a shortage of hotel beds for tourists never mind for for homeless people. So it's becoming extremely problematic. I had one case recently where, I won't name the local authority, but a a, a single parent with a one-year-old child was offered a sleeping bag. I mean, it's it's come to this now that it is extremely difficult to find accommodation for uh, for families who become homeless. And to be honest, some local authorities uh, care more about it than others. Mm, that let's doesn't. Put that. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that, that that sounds cruel, uh, but more than cruel, it sounds very dangerous uh, to expect one. Local authorities just there. don't have the uh, accommodation, mm. and they don't have the staff to try and source the accommodation. Mm. We worked with one homeless family to try and get them an hotel. This is going back a mm. while to get them an hotel for the night. It took us one hundred phone calls. And several hours on the phone to try and get an hotel bedroom that was available and uh, where the hotel was willing to offer it to a homeless person. So local authorities don't have the uh, the resources they should have. They should be given the resources. It shouldn't be up to homeless families to try and find an hotel for the night. Local authorities should be given the resources and the mandate and the obligation to ensure that any homeless family that uh, comes from their area is, is provided with accommodation, at least emergency accommodation pending uh, permanent accommodation down the road. I always hate the idea of pitting people against people uh, and asking who's more deserving than another person, uh, whether it's uh, pitting pilgrims, let's say, who are coming to Dublin for a, a papal visit uh, to see the Pope in the Phoenix yeah. Park uh, and uh, whether they're more deserving of a, a roof over their head than somebody who's in emergency accommodation under that same roof. Or In this particular story, uh, it, it does seem to stand out uh, as a very questionable thing on behalf of uh, the officials uh, who uh, contracted this hotel in Banagher to take in asylum seekers uh, to result uh, in this family being evicted is... It's it's a very hard to understand. It's it highlights the whole structural 
uh, dysfunctionality of the housing system uh, and the whole injustice of the housing system. You know, homeless uh, people and homeless families have created a billion euro industry for private landlords and mm. hotel owners. Asylum seekers have created a multi-million industry for the private owners of uh, reception centres and, uh, 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 and places for, for asylum mm. seekers to, uh, to, to, to but stay. Where's, where's, where's the logic in housing somebody who's homeless by evicting somebody who's homeless? I know. There is no logic to it, but there is no logic to the government's housing policy. The government's housing policy is to rely on the private sector, particularly private rented accommodation, to accommodate homeless people and where they can't get private rented accommodation, uh, to rely on hotels and bed and breakfast to provide them with accommodation. That is simply unacceptable and cannot provide a proper solution to this problem. The only solution to this problem is for the local authorities with government funding to go out and build uh, or acquire uh, housing which is under the control of the local authority. We've got to expand the, the number of social housing units which belong to the local authorities. Otherwise, there is no solution to this mm. problem. Uh, and looking at, at the story uh, uh, as it's presented in the Irish Times today and as best we understand it, uh, you'd have to conclude that the O'Brien family really are not being treated as people. Uh, they're not being treated in a humane way. They're being moved on as statistics, homeless statistics that need to be put into a box that can be ticked to say that they've been accommodated. Now, I don't mean that as any reflection on the people who are working uh, with the local authorities, because I'm sure that they're at their wits' end, and I know that an awful lot of them care an awful lot, and that they're trying very hard and doing their best to find accommodation. But to move somebody from Bannerher or from Tullamore to Bannerher to Trim to Mullingar uh, is just ridiculous. It's absolute. It's it's a form of child abuse. Mm. I mean, young children well, yeah. need security. They need routine. They need to uh, to feel safe. And in that situation, they are simply not doing it. Mm. I think, you know, I think coming down the road, we're going to have tribunals of inquiry mm. to uh, to investigate how how children were damaged by their experiences of long term homelessness, mm. particularly because many children are experiencing homelessness for. Uh, for for many years, uh, and in a report this morning, Kitty Holland uh, re- highlights uh, some significant health problems that the five year old has. Yes, but I mean, a lot of children, they, they, the problems that homeless children uh, develop are very well documented. Uh, they become very depressed. Mm. Uh, they become very inward uh, in themselves. They become very distrusting. Their education suffers. They, mm. they, they, they develop both physical and mental health problems. So they don't develop. They don't walk. They don't talk, as we heard right. from academics recently. But, uh, I mean, as mentioned earlier on, we're, we're paying for this. Uh, we're paying fairly handsomely, as you say. Hoteliers uh, and uh, some of uh, these contractors uh, who are taking in uh, uh, refugees uh, and that are making millions, if not billions, out of this. That's right. It's absolutely scandalous. It's, uh, it's the way the... Uh, it's the way the... Uh, the, the thinking, the neoliberal thinking goes that the private sector is supposed to provide the solution to all our problems. That is absurd, but that is the thinking behind the government. As I say, we've got to get back to seeing social housing 
as as just as important an investment as broadband mm. or transport or motorways. Social housing is fundamental to the well-being of this country and the well-being of many, many people in this country. Uh, and we've got to go back to seeing that as a uh, as an important investment, which hasn't been the case for at least the last 10, 10 15 years. OK, could you imagine nine people sleeping in a car? Uh, because that's the situation the family thought they were in at five o'clock on Monday evening before they were told. Yeah, there's, there's a wonderful film called Rosie uh, <laughs> by Roddy Doyle, <laughs> which yeah. depicts mm. a couple of days in the life of a, a homeless family. It is absolutely superb. Mm. It was part funded by RTE, so it will be on RTE, shown on RTE at some point point in the future when it finishes its tour of the cinemas yeah. and I would really recommend everyone to uh, to watch it the only thing I'd say about this particular family and I don't want to yeah. is that we are actively uh, pursuing the purchase of a house for this family and we will have permit we will have temporary accommodation for them mm. uh, in the meantime where they won't have to move from by night by night or, or if something happens in Mullingar that they can no longer stay there that the nine of them will be back in that situation that they, they were in at five o'clock on Monday evening where the only prospect was to sleep in the car yeah, that's that's appalling, absolutely appalling. How a society? We are the fifth wealthiest country in the world, according to the IMF. Mm. We're the fastest growing economy in the EU. We have thousands of millionaires in this country. <laughs> we are just our totally, totally in unequal uh, society, and that in the, uh, that unequalness, that inequality, is getting worse all the time. Okay, well, it's a very personal story to that family, uh, but it's a reflection on all of us. Uh, and uh, thank you for talking to us about it Pleasure. this morning. Thank you very much. That's Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest, who has spent a lifetime working with the homeless. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Margaret was listening in to the interview at the top of the show regarding the overspend at the National Children's Hospital and she feels that the deputy was spot on when she said it's obvious that no one crunched the numbers on the Children's Hospital project or properly assessed how much it was going to cost the state. They were too busy says Margaret, patting themselves on the back for being the government to bring the hospital to the people to bother themselves with the practicalities of costings. And now we the people are paying the price as always. I don't know. I heard somebody say the other day that uh, somebody did crunch the numbers and they spent a a lot of time, went into a lot of detail doing it, uh, but uh, they were standing on the other side of the big window and saw the government coming. And says those responsible for the financial planning uh, on the Children's Hospital project have failed miserably at it and now the project is a money-eating monster that is getting more and more out of control. Why should the taxpayers continue to pay for this? Uh, Mark from Drogheda says, Michael, of course, services and projects are going to be hit as a result of this overspend. After all, there is... Uh, just a certain amount of money to go around. Mm. So you cannot expect that things will not suffer. And he feels it's a disgrace that there just seems to be no regard for this cost overrun and the money that's going to be spent on the hospital. And he Mm. wonders how much 
will it actually cost when it's all finished? Because yeah. who knows? Well, there seems to be a, a, a funny line of logic that we're being asked to ex- uh, accept. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, the hospital dispute, the SIP2 dispute uh, mm. this week, uh, the government is saying, well, look, I, I know we agreed to pay the money. I, of course we said we'd give them the rises, but it's 16.2 million euro and we don't have mm. it. We can't spend mm. money that we don't have. Uh, although we agreed to do it, uh, maybe we shouldn't have agreed to do it, but we, look, we did agree, and we'll pay it eventually. Mm. But we don't have it now, so how can you expect us to spend money we don't have? Uh, and then they say, yeah, look, I know it's costing far more than we said it would, but that doesn't matter. Uh, we'll find it. There's no problem. I know. No problem at all. So two different stories completely there, It Michael. seems to be, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Mm. Eileen says, when you look at the cost overrun of the children's hospital, and it's not even in the best location as far as I'm concerned, I think it will be too difficult to get to. There were far better locations. I think the whole thing is just shameless. Mm. It's what? Oh, shameless. These figures mm. are being bandied about as if it's Monopoly money. Mm. Remember Monopoly, Michael? Mm-hmm. Did you play that as a yeah, child? No, Monopoly is still out there, yeah. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely new versions and all. But Tom mm. says, that that's what it sounds like you know when yeah. you hear mm. these big figures but it's yeah. actually real money that we're talking about yeah. says Tom mm. and it's real money that's going to be paid by you and I Michael the mm. ordinary taxpayer let's remember is going to be footing the bill for mm. this yeah. mm-hmm. so look that's just a flavour of what's come in nobody okay. kind of saying that yes that's meant money should be spent <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so far well we're spending a lot of money and uh, I think uh, I mean that's recognised by everybody and uh, for years now for as long as I can remember anyway and that's a long time uh, the question is are we spending the money wisely yeah. on the gangland feud we did a phone call from John who was listening to the audio that you played and he says in relation to the shootings and petrol bombs that are going on in mm. the town what uh, I the point I want to make is that Gardaí know who they are and I just don't understand, says John, why they cannot go out and arrest them and put the town at ease. That's all that people want. He says Gardaí are stretched. They're not able to do the things they normally would be doing because they're tied up with this Mm. feud. And he says, I have four young children and I'm afraid, Michael, to go out to events in the town Mm. with them because you just don't know where it's going to be targeted next. And his fear is that somebody... Uh, innocent will be killed and it could be somebody that just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and he says a lot of people are feeling the same way Mm, Okay, well I think that's a a point uh, that uh, the Labour Party has been asking and uh, how uh, the Criminal Justice Act uh, could see these people being brought before the Special Criminal Court on uh, the word of a senior member of the Gardaí. Um, But uh, when it it comes to this feud, I think that quite a number of the people who were involved Mm. in it have been arrested. Uh, Quite a number Mm. of them are on bail, we're told. Told, And indeed, uh, we heard uh, the Commissioner and the Deputy Commissioner speaking at the Justice Committee uh, a little bit earlier on telling us uh, that uh, quite a It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Significant amount of resources being put at this, both overt and covert. Tommy says, moving from that of a can to the story about homelessness and uh, homeless children. Tommy says, listening to uh, Father McFerry talking about how homelessness is impacting on young children would break your heart. What kind of country are we living in at all when our future generations are having to grow up in such uncertain environments Mm. and our government appears to be turning a blind eye? They should hang their heads in shame at what these children are having to endure. It really is an incredible story, that is isn't it, uh, of that family uh, to it, travel it around is. the country like that uh, over the course of a week? And, 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 I, and I read it just, and on one stage they thought they were going to have to sleep in the car, Michael. Mm, did you, yeah. did you uh, see that? Five o'clock on Monday evening, they were told that they needed to leave the hotel that they were staying in mm. in Banner because uh, that was now going to facilitate asylum seekers. That was the point I was putting to Peter McVeary. Where's the logic? in accommodating somebody who's homeless by evicting somebody who's homeless. In this case, it, it was uh, the O'Brien family. They were told to leave so that the asylum seekers could stay there. Uh, and they would nowhere to go. So the nine of them were going to sleep in the car. Uh, and then they found this place in Trim, a hotel in Trim in County Meath. And uh, they were there for three nights and they've been moved on since uh, to Mullingar. It's just hard to believe in this day and age that that's mm. what's happening, isn't yeah. it? Well, little three-year-old involved, uh, the five-year-old uh, very sick by all accounts. Uh, very, very uh, hard to understand uh, how you wouldn't be at your wit's end. Absolutely. Mm. And it, it is touching mm. a chord with our listeners. OK. Um, Mairead from Drada was listening to the interview and during the interview, I think at one stage, Father McFerry mentioned a one-year-old child at one stage been giving a sli- been given a sleeping bag. That's right, yeah. And Mairead says she just actually mm. couldn't believe that she was hearing this. It, a one-year-old child. It has child. to be very dangerous, you know. There has to be a chance of the child smothering in a sleeping bag like that. It's not appropriate. And, and she says, mm. you, you hear that story mm. and then against that, you have people in power saying that you know, Ireland is a great country and Ireland is on the up mm. and oh, well, things is. are good for people in Ireland. But the mm. point she's making yeah. is, but they're not good. Good for who? They're not yeah. good for every. Mm. It's not good for everybody. Well, Peter McVeary uh, was saying this morning, I haven't seen that statistic, but he says, according to the IMF, we're the fifth richest country in the world. 
that's the point that she mm-hmm. was making yep. anyway. Mm-hmm. She just can't, I suppose, when you when you look at, at what, that's one side of what's mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. and then you have yeah. the other side of, of yeah. Ireland, the two faces of Ireland, I suppose. Yeah, tale uh, of two cities. Yes. Like. My heart goes out to that family, says another Lister, Nistler, be moved from pillar to post. Is there nowhere that a house could be found for them in the whole of the country, even if they have to move out of the area, which they have to do anyway, if they're mm. going from hotels, uh, you know, if they're going around mm. hotels. Um, well, don't forget some of these children are going to school in Tullamore. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about three hotels, mm. none of them in Tullamore. Mm. The first of them in Banagher, right. which is 40 minutes yeah. from Tullamore, yeah. uh, at least between 30 and 40 minutes. Uh, and yeah. then from Banagher to Trim to Mullingar. And, you know, we're supposed to uh, have uh, free education, let alone uh, the right to, to uh, a child being educated in this country under the Constitution. Mick says that there seems to be no coordinated approach to dealing with the housing crisis. He feels that the first priority of any local authority should be to make sure that anybody who is homeless in their county has somewhere to to sleep at night time and feels that this should be above anything else, that that's what should concern local authorities. Maybe so. It's not the case, though. Uh, Michael, I'm sick listening to people with loads of children wanting everything paid for them, says a texter. Mm. Why don't they stop having sex and having babies? They should know after three kids how expensive Mm. it is. We should be giving out condoms. Yeah, maybe we should castrate people uh, who uh, don't have jobs. (laughs) Castrate the unemployed. Let's start a campaign. (laughs) What a ridiculous comment. (laughs) There you go. <laughs> the mind boggles. Evelyn uh, mm. um, sympathises, mm. she says, with people who can't get on the property ladder. Mm. She says that's a huge difficulty, that uh, it's becoming further and further removed from people being able to do it. Mm. And she says that she's aware of farmers who are buying up um, labourers' cottages mm. and renting them out mm. at huge pr- yeah. prices. And she says, can the council not take these over and give them to families in need. She says that landlords have lots of money buying up multiple properties and are preventing ordinary people with little money from getting yeah, well, on the we property ladder. hearing uh, at the start of the week uh, how fairly well paid people will spend 10 years saving to get a deposit. Moving to climate change, mm. Michael, we had a phone call from a listener uh, yesterday. We were discussing it to say, uh, just in relation to this, to this plan, mm. what about buses, Michael? Mm. Uh, is the government going to start introducing electric buses? Yes, we've won already. So that's going to be... <laughs> <laughs> Mm. That's that's their plan. That's yeah. going to be happening mm. all over the country. Right, there's right. no one to know. I think that's part of the plan. Yeah. And taxis mm. will all taxis now have to be electric? Well, I think all cars will be. I mean, you won't be able to buy a, a petrol or a diesel car from 2030 onwards, isn't it? So eventually, they'll all be electric. Yeah, all of the cars will be electric. All right. Well, mm. we'll finish on that. Okay. Thanks electric for that. Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is eighteen fifty. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, uh, the SIP2 trade union has uh, gone into discussions uh, with uh, the government under the auspices of uh, the Labour Court, where they're trying to find a resolution to a dispute over the government's refusal to pay increases to 10,000 workers in the health service which it had promised to do last August. This goes back to 2015 in fact and uh, the Lansdowne Road 
Agreement. Let's hear a, a little bit from the author of the Lansdowne Road Agreement. Their strike is not about any new pay claim. It's about requiring the government to honour its side of an agreement that both sides entered into freely. Workers, Taoiseach, as you know, delivered on very difficult pay deals during the economic crisis. They honoured agreements which were instrumental in securing our economic recovery. It would be, in my judgment, an act of betrayal for the state to go back on its commitments now. What's at stake is not simply the honouring of an agreement, but the maintenance between the state and employees of fundamental trust. SIP2 has called on the Minister for Health to intervene. The government, in my judgment, shouldn't have allowed matters to go to this point. The workers involved are essential to the running of our health system, and they are also among the lowest paid. So, Taoiseach, do you accept that this revaluation process was formally agreed between the unions and employers? Why are you undermining confidence in the HSC and the Department of Health as honest dealmakers in the name of the state? Brendan Helen is uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party and, as you know, the agreement that SIPTU has to receive increases in pay is one that was reached with the HSE and the Department of Health. It's the Department of Public Expenditure, though, that's saying it won't fund those increases, at least not now. In 2015, Brendan Helen was the Minister for Public Expenditure and the Minister who introduced the Lansdowne Road Agreement. I think you'll accept that. This re-evaluation process was to be held before the economic crisis. By agreement, these matters were put into abeyance until such time as we had the capacity to pay again, with the forbearance and agreement of the unions and the workers in the health service. There was clearly an understanding that once the re-evaluation of the job specs was completed, that the remuneration appropriate to the new grading would apply. That was understood. Now, we're joined uh, by Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, who was Minister for Employment at the time, and I think would have a a fair understanding of what was in the Lansdowne Road Agreement and how that should uh, apply now. Mm -hmm. Who's in breach, if anybody's in breach? Um, Well, I've long taken the view that, um, in fact, the government um, is in breach. Um, They haven't, uh, as Brendan has said, uh, honoured their uh, side of the deal and the bargain. Um, while I wasn't directly involved in the negotiations uh, on the Lansdowne Road Agreement, uh, I was, uh, as it were, figuratively speaking, outside um, and tic-tacking um, to a large degree with the unions, uh, understanding um, what it is they required um, to get a deal done uh, and ensuring, for example, that in the Lansdowne Road Agreement, and remember this was the agreement uh, that for the first time since 2008 um, recognised that uh, the economy was recovering uh, and that in the context of that recovery it was going to be lowest paid and middle income public sector workers who were going to benefit first um, from the recovery and that's in the architecture of this agreement. But not all public sector agreements can capture the reality of the working arrangements of all public servants. We know that um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach uh, and I remember very distinctly having conversations with um, colleagues like um, Paul Bell uh, around healthcare assistants, around chefs uh, and around other uh, health Support, health service, support staff, grades to 
ensure that we could resurrect this evaluation process that was originally agreed to uh, mm. in 2008 and was actually parked, put in mm. abeyance, as Brenda described it, when the economic crash came. Okay, because right. the objective of the mm. trade union movement, of course, at the time, mm. was to work as hard as they could in the context uh, of the economic uh, difficulties uh, to rem- defend I, the positions. I that remember it fairly had. clearly myself, uh-huh. and the, the criticism that Paul Bell and others, let's say, in the SIP2 trade union, would have heard from people like me, uh, suggesting that they were just propping up Labour in government at, at the time and supporting the position that you were taking by uh, allowing uh, these cuts to be made to workers. Uh, and the reason I mention that is because there is a, an elephant in the room and SIPTU is obviously affiliated to, to the Labour Party, but that cuts both ways. So we're at the other end of this now. Uh, and at the time, uh, SIPTU was saying, well, look, you know, we're in this state of crisis and we've been told that we get to the end of it. Uh, if we do our bit, uh, well, then we'll be rewarded for that. They did their bit. Uh, and now that's been reneged on well, by they, the they, current they, government. They, they, they did their bit for, for the country. Mm. And public servants understood that the employer was in receivership, um, that there wasn't any money around to provide for increases and so on to public sector pay, as would be the normal position inter- year, year on year. Um, SIP2 and other trade unions in the Irish Congress of Trade Unions took a defensive kind of mode. They manned the barricades, as mm. it were, worked with the Labour Party to make sure that, for example, in the Hadding Road Agreement, it was very clear that no public sector worker under €65,000 would actually lose any money. Mm. Uh, additional hours would be required. Uh, and that the understanding then was, which was reflected in the Lansdowne Road Agreement, that when the economy started to recover, mm. there would be low and middle income workers who would start to recover first. In and fact, this re-evaluation should have happened in 2016, in two th- 2017, well, well, 2000. 18, but there were all sorts of problems, uh, probably too complicated to go into now. But uh, instead of it happening, let's say, in 2016, it was August last year before this agreement was reached. So the workers were pretty patient, weren't they? That's right. And in fact, if, if you look back, and I mean, I don't want to mm. lose listeners, yeah. but in the, in the mechanics of all of this, and Paul would have described mm. it more elegantly than I can, because obviously he was responsible for these negotiations, these discussions directly with HSE, the Department of Health and the WRC. I read last night through the agreement again, just to refresh my memory, you know, it was coming in, it's very clear that this job evaluation process is inserted into the architecture of that agreement. Not only that, Mm. but the union was actually at the WRC with the HSE back in 2017. I read actually a note from the WRC yesterday that makes it very, very clear Mm. that, in fact, the expectation was that monies would be paid um, in 2018 Mm. um, to these great groups and categories. A month after the agreement. And to ensure the integrity Mm. of the agreement and to ensure there's no follow-on claims and knock-on claims from any other great group or category of worker across the public service, Mm. it was made very clear that this particular arrangement is distinct to these grades, groups and categories of workers. So very, very clear. I I read that circular, it's called 1071, I think. Yes. Yeah. Circular 1071 uh, to Patrick O'Donovan the junior finance minister yesterday on the programme, uh, and he said... Well, look, 11, you know, 17. Oh, I beg your pardon. Uh, that they should go into uh, the Labour Court. Uh, well, is, been, is, well, is it open to interpretation? Uh, no, it's open to implementation. Um, mm. It's as clear as the nose in your face what needs to happen next. It's a case of pay up Pascal. Mm. It's a political issue now. It's not a matter for interpretation. The WRC made it clear yesterday to the unions and to the employer side that they could take this process as far They've taken this process as far as they could. So the Labour Court intervention was made, thankfully, without any preconditions, because I don't think it is healthy mm. um, to provide, to introduce preconditions at this point in time. There's what still some the distance arg- between the two sides. What about the, the argument the Taoiseach put forward during the week, that not all of the staff have been re-evaluated, that this is happening in phases, and I, I think phase one, two and three has been completed, and phase four has yet to happen? Well, well, that's a matter for the Labour Court, I think, to 
if we're to interpret anything, we may inter- that, that may be the piece that might be interpreted. Um, but take it back just a few days. I mean, the glacial place of pace of progress has frustrated the workers who I mm. stood on the picket line with the Loud County Hospital and in Our Lady Lords Hospital just a few short days ago. They don't want to have to go out on strike next Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. But certainly spirits are high and they have a determination uh, that I've rarely seen from a group of workers to ensure that they're no longer ignored. This is about respect as well as about pay justice for those workers. Because the Fine Gael view is mm. that it's doctors and nurses that run the health service. There's an upstairs-downstairs attitude here. Um, we see it as well in the education system where the disrespect for special needs assistance, the disrespect for mm. school secretaries, the disrespect for school mm. caretakers, a real upstairs-downstairs attitude that's reflected in Fine Gael's approach. Mm. My um, view on this is that Fine Gael, in fact, and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform has been trying, in fact, to reopen negotiations yeah. on the job evaluation scheme. They have set their backs against this. They have tried to describe this in terms of their spin and PR battle um, as, um, well, you know, public sector workers are having their pay restored and we've hired X number of additional yeah. uh, workers in the health. This is not what this is about. Mm. Um, they're trying to win this PR battle. But the view, I think, and, and the support of the public is very much on the side of healthcare assistance, porter chefs and others. Well, I think uh, the healthcare assistant uh, role is probably a, a good role to look at in trying to understand this. Uh, because, well, I- I- if you're on a hospital ward this morning, you might be calling the nurse uh, because he or she is wearing a white coat uh, and that is most likely not the nurse. Uh, the nurse is usually wearing a blue coat and the healthcare assistant is uh, the person that you're referring to as nurse and you might think they're a nurse for many good reasons, not just because of what they're wearing, but because of how they're caring for you, uh, how they're uh, taking your blood pressure or whatever it is. And that is how their job has changed, that they wear care assistants and now they've taken on a lot of the duties that nurses originally did. Absolutely, and that was and always that's the why they have to be, And that's why they have to be paid more. Well, that's, that's why, I mean, this is, remember, an independent job evaluation mm. process. A number of years ago, the health, uh, healthcare assistant grade came in. Uh, it was quite, at least in my sense, quite informal and an organic development of a new position of the health service that was designed to make sure that the work that nurses were qualified to do, professional nurses, that they could do those med- that medical work and weren't in some way distracted, if I can call it, but mm. with, with other other duties. Um, healthcare assistants now are required to have uh, FITAC Level 5 accreditation, internationally recognised qualification mm. in healthcare. Um, it's a formal course that they do, a structured course. Uh, many pursue other courses of study as well, mm. uh, become senior healthcare assistants and so on, and, and manage healthcare assistants and wards and so on. A very, very important role for not just patients, but for, mm-hmm. for families as well. They're the people who the relationship is formed with mm. uh, on the hospital ward or in the nursing home uh, and so on. A very, very important role. Look at chefs, for example. Mm. The responsibilities they have in terms of um, uh, safety, in terms of food standards, has evolved uh, enormously in the regulatory requirements over the last few years. Very qualified people in a very competitive environment mm. where restaurants and hotels are crying out for chefs. These individuals mm. want to work and continue to work in the health service, but they want respect. They if want I'm to be not moved mistaken, to the craft grade. Yeah, if uh, I'm not mistaken, this process could have gone either way for the staff. Well, absolutely. This they, is an independent could, job evaluation like, process. You take they, your chances. Yeah, they, 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 they were told that they're doing more, that their work is more valuable, and they deserve an increase. It could have gone the other way, and they could have been told, uh, well, you're being paid too much. Your pay should be cut. 
That's correct. Um, you take your chances. Um, the union, though, and the workers know themselves. Mm. They're the people who are in the front line. They know. Mm. They're the people who require the additional qualifications that they achieved mm. over the last few years. They've seen the job evolve. Um, it has been independently assessed and examined, and an mm. independent recommendation was made that these individuals are uh, not paid sufficiently mm. for the work so, that they do. So the you enter into this in have. good faith. You do, and you expect the government, mm. by the way, who is your employer, yep. to honour that. Uh, and everybody agrees with that. The question is, when will they be paid the money they're due? And this comes down to this argument that the government is putting forward, which is very hard to understand, let alone accept, which is that it's a question of interpretation. Because I think that circular that we were talking about earlier on says that regardless of how many phases there are in terms of evaluating the staff's work, that the staff should get the increases that they're entitled to a month after they've been re-evaluated. That's correct. And we've been waiting now a couple of years um, to, to see that happen. And th- there are wider implications politically um, for this and in the context of the any future public sector pay agreement. We have a union here um, that voted en masse, um, understanding the conditions that the country are in at the time. A deal was made. And as I said in the Shannon the other day, if you're in business or in life in general, if you make a deal, that deal is honoured. Um, what's happening here is that because of Fine Gael's very damaged reputation in managing the public finances uh, and their so-called reputation for fiscal prudence, what they're trying now to do is to recover that reputation by picking a fight with the lowest paid health service workers in this country. It's a disgrace. It's pathetic. We won't let it happen. Uh, I fully support the case that these workers have made and the union has made, and I'll continue to do that. Hopefully we won't be in a situation where at the gate again next Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, but I know there's a determination on the part of those workers to get justice and get the respect that they deserve. This has been going on for far too long, and there will be serious political consequences, uh, I think, if this continues uh, any longer. Nobody wants to see this continue. People want uh, to to, to get the money that's owed to them. Um, This has gone on for far too long. Uh, and uh, it's quite disgraceful. What do you think? Really, well, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Paul Bell, uh, we heard him uh, in the bulletins uh, talking before he went into the Labour Court this morning uh, to represent the SIP2 members, uh, saying that he's going in without preconditions. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think there'll be strikes next week? I really don't know. Um, I mean, I heard Pascal Donoghue last night saying he expects the Labour Court to ask them to call it off so that they could talk. But... There, but there hasn't been any call. And I mean, the the, the uh, Labour Court has invited the parties in for mm. exploratory, essentially exploratory mm. discussions this morning to see if there's a basis for uh, an agreement. And SIPT is quite right uh, not to defer or call off, mm. however you might want to describe it, any action. Um, the determination and the resolve remains. Um, that in many ways would be a precondition and would be trying to shape the outcome of what the cor- of, of, of the court's consideration of this. Um, I know that um, the uh, union uh, will want to have an open and frank exchange at the Labour Court, respects the Labour Court as the um, final arbiter in many, in many respects in terms of industrial relations institutions of the state. It's an evolving process, Michael. I don't want to determine what's going to happen. I can't anticipate that. I think as the union is prepared, and I hope the employer is prepared to do as well, the Department of Public Expansion Reform, allow the court to do its job. Let's see how it evolves today. But I'll say this again, nobody wants to have to go on strike, but there's a determination there to get justice. Uh, and I hope that uh, this campaign is vindicated. Um, um, but ultimately, I think this is a political decision. Um, we saw what has happened um, for in terms of some categories of public sector workers who have decided, arguably, to pursue their claims outside of the framework of the public sector pay process. Mm. Remember, 
This, isn't this is a, claim. a union that's pursuing a claim through well, it's the public not a claim. sector. It's not actually additional claim. Yeah. It's actually vindication mm-hmm. of something that's there already. Yeah. Um, it's an entitlement. It's an entitlement. It's a question, uh, of, it's a question of implementation mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. Mm-hmm. But I'm afraid that too much time has been wasted by Deeper uh, and others this week in government in general. Um, obfuscating, obfuscating, delaying, frustrating and and trying to reopen negotiations on something that's as clear as that was in your face. Okay, thank you. Labour Party Senator Gerald Bash. Michael Reed on LMFM. If AIR was uh, to take responsibility for the National Broadband Plan, would it be able to offer coverage to 100% of the country? Would it deliver contact to each of the homes in question? Would it service the structure of it and make sure that people were getting a service? And would there be any delay in delivering the plan? Well, Breyer seems to be saying that it could do all of this, uh, but at €2 billion then is currently being suggested uh, with Carolyn Lennon, its chief executive, telling the Oireachtas Committee earlier this week that it could do it for less than a billion. Uh, There's been some interest in what she has had to say and uh, some scepticism for that matter. Let's uh, hear from Michael Fitzmaurice, who's an independent TD in Roscommon Galway. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here this morning. Uh, What's your thoughts on this? Uh, Do you think it's possible? Well, first of all, we don't know exactly yet, to be quite frank about it. Um, There's a fair difference between 3 billion and 1 billion. Um, If you listen to what AIR has said, they didn't say that they were doing it the dead same as what the procurement process was. Um, now, at the end of the day, what people want is high-speed broadband, mm. um, which, whichever way that it comes, they need it. Um, but um, they have delivered 300,000, and the first thing I think that needs to be noted is that, um, you know, I sat in at 80 days of talks, and I went into that department. We were told at the time that I would not get that contract for the 300,000. I brought it up the other day at the committee. Um they told us that a licence wouldn't be given and it has transpired the other day that so long as you have money in your pocket, if you're a supplier of broadband, you can go wherever you want in the country without any licence. So we were basically sold a pub within those government talks, not by TDs, but by um, uh, people within in that department, to be quite honest about it. Um, it. The big problem seems to be, and to put it into simple context for people, is that under the procurement process, you would have to have basically be it a separate unit or, or a second floor um, with staff in it that would be catering for that only. And what AIR had said was that they were prepared with the staff they have. They have a marketing staff and a sales teams and they have 80 people involved in that section. And if they were allowed to sell it, um, in that same building with those people, mm. maybe they'd need a, a few extra... Using their existing structures. Using their existing mm. structure, um, they would be able to do it at the billion. Mm. Um, they also stated clearly that um, the connection fee, and, and uh, this is what I should say, at the moment, um, under the National Broadband Plan, they are saying the connection fee would be €100. Euro. Um, here I've stated clearly it's 170 that they are but then some other providers buy a certain amount of broadband off um, off air 
and supply it to customers and they may do deals that may be less and you know but you have Sky and you have Vodafone and all those that mm-hmm. sort of sub it out again from them and give it to people but there's a in the line of what you pay for the broadband it's it's regulated um, be you in rural or city it would be the, the same in the line of the you know this uh, future proofing that the department came out with over the last few days they made it very clear that basically if they were given broadband that they would future proof it now the question is um, I know that the government has written to air to get them to clarify things and mm. um, I know that you know you have to look at every single part of it but um, if they can give high speed broadband to 300,000 people and it is working good um, well then obviously it needs to be considered um, they said they pulled out the process because two or three times they made it very clear that they weren't going to set up a separate unit for staff yeah. um, and, and that was going to put a heavier load on it. And um, they'd save 900 million euro without getting out of bed it seems uh, because uh, that's uh, what they're going to charge Granaham Court for access to polls. Well they, they, what they have said that's they needed to actually get that, um, and, and this is this is you know part of the the whole debacle. Um, they will get the price of the polls now. They said they brought up sixty thousand polls or whatever, um, and but what they were where where they'll save money compared with Brennan McCourt or any other supplier mm-hmm. is basically they have lines going out to where going out in the three hundred thousand section. That's within. Uh, that's very. That's besides, to put it bluntly, the national the the national broadband plan area, mm. and they wouldn't be putting a duplicate wire where, if you are in the tender process, they expect you to put a new wire going along by their wires, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, which is rather unusual thing. You'd imagine you'd tap into it would be more sensible, yeah. mm. and uh, that you put in this uh, man box. And that you tap into it, but um, that's look at it, that has to be looked at. And mm. um, it looks attractive, to be honest about it. Now, look at let's be honest about this. Um, and this is with a heavy heart, I'd say this: mm. we need broadband as quick as possible. And to, being realistic, if if the if things were stopped on their tracks at the moment, and this is being bl- brutally blunt about it, it would be probably the goods of the year um, all going well. And looking at that department. With since 2012, what they have done, I wouldn't be surprised if it was longer if they went back mm. into a process. But three billion um, against one billion is a fair difference, and it. I would. I. I a small did, matter uh, of two thousand million euro. Uh, yeah, which, well, I could say, look at it. Three of the budget yeah. that they're talking about this year, um, and I think that even if it's a pause for two to three months to see, is it? Is this going? Can it do the things that mm. it needs to but it, do? But even if it could, yeah. uh, and you were to save two billion, uh, it's mm. most likely not possible because it's most likely illegal, uh, 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 if not illegal, uh, and certainly not uh, in line that it would be a breach of European uh, competition laws. Maybe, maybe not. Um, if we give uh, a design and build, which would be. Uh, you know, I come, I would have been in the construction side and things. And if you mm. do a design and build type of a procurement process, um, that could cover you in under EU law. But it, it would seem that you would have to rewrite the procurement process to suit her. 
Well, the sad part of this is for, and uh, you know, the sad part is over the last two years, from what Air has told the committee uh, the last day, they have been highlighting this to make the changes that would make it affordable. But they were very clear at saying the other day, and like, let's be honest, and you know, you know, I, I had a, a go at them as well as listening to them about, you know, we see people with phone lines and that and they don't be fixed overnight to be quite honest about it. The other part about this as well that the under the National Broadband Plan was that if a line broke down you had to guarantee this um, 94% off the top of my head uh, would be fixed mm. within two days where they said they would, they would only guarantee 85% mm. within two days. And these are the things that seemingly is adding what they said was that if you went to 94%, you'd have engineers sitting in offices right around the country nearly waiting for it to break yeah. down, whereas uh, they would be trying to run it probably more efficiently uh, the way that people wouldn't be, that they'd be sort of nearly shooting, going from place to place fixing. Um, it needs looking at. Yeah. It needs it needs to be checked out. Um, I, there's no doubt about it. If, if, the, if it was to change... The whole um, procurement, as you have rightly pointed out, mm. you'd have to look at design and build. Or, um, like you know, you can take in you can take in um, submissions from different companies as to how they would uh, give this around the country. And I heard you saying a hundred percent there. Yeah. No one, no one is guaranteeing a hundred percent. Well, well that, the, that was the next question I was going to ask you. Let's. Yeah, if, let, you look, I, if you look at the if you look at the national broadband plan. Yeah. Mm. They started off at 100, mm. but they're at, I think, something like 94 or 95 now. Okay, but, you know, how much is 2 billion worth? Uh, I mean, would it be worth saving 2 billion if you could only deliver broadband to 90% of the homes? No, no, no. no. We, need to, we need to stick with what was on the National Broadband Plan to to compare like with like, to be quite honest, which mm. there's no point in we, like we can say we'll do 70%, and obviously it be cheaper than... Mm. If you're do if you're suddenly you're doing ninety four or ninety five percent on the national broadband plan, then obviously they would have to be uh, doing a comparable number. And um, like as I pointed out as well the other day, there is pandemonium. You know it in your own area mm. there, Michael, as good yeah. as anybody, where they have brought the the broadband and the broadband is good. There's no point in saying it's not. The people that have got the new in the yep. three hundred thousand section, but. Um, if your house was 100 metres after it and you're not in that 300,000, then you won't get it. And that is a problem. They were very clear as well, and this was sort of a surprise to me, to be quite honest with you. They were very clear that to be you know, brought in by a wire, that they won't be digging ducks up through gardens or up through driveways, where it appears that under the National Broadband Plan, there's a commitment, which I think is absolutely crazy, Mm. If you bring the broadband to a person's house, and if if someone wants it in a duct, which is basically you have to dig a trench and put in a duct, um, the person, in my opinion, should be doing that themselves, not okay, or, else put, or else put a wire. Uh, overheat. Uh, any, uh, anybody sure. can do that. It, it's hard not to think that by the time we get around to delivering broadband well, like in, in this country, go, that it'll duct, be. If you're going to go duct and broadband, yeah. 
uh, which appears to be in the National Broadband Plan, mm. if you're going ducting it up everyone's driveway or up, uh, you know, Jesus, you'd be all your, you'd be a long time. I just wonder, by the time we do it, uh, will broadband be outdated and we'll be looking at narrow brand or high band or something, well, uh, some new I, technology I, by that stage? Yeah, 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 people yeah. would say that, Michael, mm-hmm. but the, the, like, since 2012, people talked about different types of broadband and better broadband coming. The people that have been left out still have nothing. That's the bottom line. Okay, Michael, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us today. Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we heard earlier in the programme some of uh, the contributions uh, to Wednesday's Oroctus Justice Committee, where the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris uh, was appearing before members. And indeed, he spoke, as you heard earlier in the programme, about uh, the ongoing feud in Drogheda. Another issue that was raised at that meeting of uh, the committee was uh, the killing of a 43 year old Irish farmer in 1991. The father of seven children, uh, native of Riverstown, County Louth, on the Cooley Peninsula. Here's independent TD for Louth, Peter Fitzpatrick, raising the issue of the killing of Tom Oliver. On the 13th of February, uh, the first time you came in front of the committee, uh, the Commission, uh, we spoke about the murder of Tom Oliver, a husband and father of seven children who was murdered on the 19th of July 1991. He was abducted, tortured, brutally murdered by members of Division IOA, his body was found across the border in Belique County, Yamaha. He was shot in the head. Uh, you made a statement the last time that, uh, that uh, this was in the jurisdiction uh, of the PSNI and the PSNI was investigating the murder. Uh, since we last spoke on the 13th of February, did you contact the PSNI? Is there any update in the investigation of the Tom Oliver murder? Um, well, uh, my understanding of, well, my knowledge of this at the moment is that. Um, uh, the, the murder of Tom Oliver is now subject to review. It's been, um, a, and the review team have visited, they've viewed our documentation, and now they will follow the legal process so that they can um, obtain uh, the information and evidence that we would have to insist with their inquiry. As you, as you will be aware, we have conducted our own review into this investigation. So there's information that we possess which will be um, of assistance to um, uh, PSNI under the um, uh, OPCANOVA operation to review this murder. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, we, 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 uh, we, we, uh, we also spoke to you about, uh, about the, the Smithics Tribunal back in October 2012, which was on a closed session. Uh, we we spoke about uh, one file in particular, number one file, which was compiled by the PSNI, the OUC, and the M15, the British Security Service. Uh, that uh, intelligence uh, indicated that a senior provision IOA uh, council member was directly involved in the murdering, of the ordering of the murder of Tom Oliver. And uh, uh, you, you attended that meeting as a, as assistant chief counsel in the PSNI. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, you were asked at the time. Uh, uh, whether you knew the identity of the provisional man, and you you said you, you did, and that you passed the information on to the guard of the Shirkon. You also wrote the name down on a, on a piece of paper, and you give it to Judge uh, Peter Smithix. The two questions I want to know is, now the fact that you are 
the Commissioner of the Garda, and I'm sure that you know this piece of paper. The last thing you told me that it was to do with the Chief Constable of Northern Ireland. Now you are the Garda Commissioner of the, of the, of the Garda in Ireland. So what I'm trying to say to you is that piece of paper that was, that was passed over to the Garda Shia Khan that time, is that still in, in the Garda Shia, Shia Khan possession? Uh, are you in a position to name the person on that there? Well, it, it would be um, it, that that intelligence was shared with Angarda Shikana, so that is now within my possession. That's correct, but it would be entirely inappropriate given that the well, uh, given one the um, uh, the fact that there is an ongoing um, review of of the murder investigation, it would be entirely inappropriate for me to disclose that name, and in any case. Um, I, would, I would be in breach of all form of data protection and, and Article 2 responsibilities for me to name it in a, to give that name in a public forum. So that would preclude me from um, naming any individual in, in such a forum. Um, second, well, uh, and I've covered off that there's a review ongoing and that information is available to that review team. Well, uh, my, my main concern at the moment is uh, this murder happened in 1991. And in fairness, your man of your word, I believe that you said that at the last meeting we met on the 13th of February, you said you would go and meet the Oliver family. I believe you did meet the Oliver family, and yes. I'd like to say your man of your word. I'm just going to say is that the experience that you had uh, in the PSNI and the job you've done so far in being Commissioner of the Gardas is, 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 is very good, and I think people are, are responding to you. It's just an awful shame, I'm just saying this, is that, uh, that we can't get closure on a murder that happened back in July 1991. Uh, some of the family members have died, the family still suffering very badly, uh, and I'm just trying to say is the fact that, that the PSNI and the Garden of Sheikon have the name of the person who ordered the murder of Tom Oliver, and basically it's sitting dormant there at the moment. I don't think it's, been, it's fair. I, I think something should be done. The name should be published. I'm just going to say, where do we go from here? Well, um, I would point to the fact that we have been through a review of our investigation. There's a review ongoing and by um, the Opkanova team. Uh, and we are assisting them in terms of the information and evidence that we hold. So there's a process underway, an investigative process, and that um, is with the object of leading to a criminal justice outcome, if, if possible. If possible. The Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, responding to Independent TD for Louth, uh, Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, that interaction took place at the Oireachtas Justice Committee on Wednesday evening and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Before we go, let me remind you there will be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control term. Hope you have a lovely weekend. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.